Hi there. Uh, this is our overwhelming surprise that we've been reading on Sundays. I'm usually publishing it uh, like in the evening, around 5 or so. And we're up to Chapter 5. Uh, it's titled The Sign. It's by W.D. Frizzee. In the September 1965 issue of the U.S. Catholic Magazine, there appeared an article entitled, why the Seventh-day Adventists are succeeding. It's very funny. That they would even notice or care. Well, this is in an interesting day when the Roman Catholic Church is taking cognizance of this little denomination. The author says, written in the ecumenical spirit, it raises the question, what can we learn from our separated brethren? What, what can we learn from our Adventist friends? It praises the Seventh-day Adventist Church for its zeal, for its church school system, for its health reform message, and the results as revealed in our comparative freedom from lung cancer and some other diseases. The author says, Unlike most Christian denominations, the Seventh-day Adventist Church has barely been touched by the current economical movement, ecumenical movement. I trust that will continue to be so. Continuing the article, Roman Catholicism fares rather poorly in Adventist preaching and literature. Some Adventist authors carry on an old-fashioned vendetta against the Church of Rome, whose popes were responsible for changing the observance of Sabbath from Saturday to Sunday, and hereby leading Christendom down the road to apostasy. Obviously, that's simply this author reflecting what he feels is the Adventist view. He doesn't think that the change of the Sabbath from Sunday, Saturday to Sunday heading Christian down the road to apostasy, but he is representing the Adventist position. So listen carefully as I read. Quote, Most Protestants as well as Catholics reject the Adventist interpretation of the Sabbath commandment as demanding the observance of Saturday. Nevertheless, we might profit from an examination of how the Adventists try to keep their Sabbath holy. For the devout Adventists, the Sabbath begins at sundown Friday, as it does for the Orthodox Jews. Meals are prepared on Friday so that food preparation need not take up the wife's time on the Sabbath. Saturday morning is spent in church and Sabbath school. The rest of the day is devoted to Bible reading and study, simple family recreation such as nature walks, prayer, and discussing Bible topics with friends. The radio and the TV are silent until the end of the Sabbath at sundown on Saturday. Isn't that a beautiful picture of Seventh-day Adventists observing the Lord's Holy Day? God help us to live it out every Sabbath. Well, now I go back to the article. Quote, Could we contrast this observance of the Sabbath with that which characterizes the conduct of millions of Christians? In too many homes, Sunday may be a day free from regular employment, but it is really just another day of the week. If we take a stroll through many neighborhoods, we will see Christians painting their homes, washing the car, hanging storm windows or screens, carrying on various do-it-yourself projects. We know that shopping centers and stores could not make a profit on Sunday if millions of Christians did not choose that day of the week to buy furniture, automobiles, appliances, groceries, and clothing. We profess to be shocked that the Soviets deliberately erased the religious significance of Sunday in order to undermine the role of religion in the lives of the Russian people. Have we not done much the same thing in the United States and often in defiance of the laws 
designed to preserve the values of a day of rest? Our Adventist friends remind us that the Sabbath was not given only to a band of desert people centuries ago, but to each generation of men. God asks that all men set apart one day out of seven to his service, as well as to the recreation of the human body and spirit. The author of man's nature knew that such a day was essential to man's spiritual, emotional, and physical well-being. We not only obey his commandment, but we flirt with a personal disaster when we ignore the significance of the Sabbath. As Catholics, we have often aimed at a minimal observance of the Lord's Day. We attend Mass and avoid servile work broadly defined. Perhaps the Adventists can remind us that the creative and holy observance of the day demands more than this bare minimum. And that's the end quote. Very interesting, isn't it? Then the author speaks of our extensive welfare program, not limited merely to Adventists. He mentions our Dorcas and welfare societies, the fact that Adventists don't believe in killing they're non-combatants. Then he says, we can see that the decision to become an Adventist would not be made lightly. A convert would be expected to tithe his income, attend Sabbath service every week, abstain from unnecessary work on the Sabbath, forego liquor and tobacco, educate his children in parochial schools, avoid dancing, card playing, and movies, give up cosmetics and jewelry, sever any connection with a secret society, Yet the Adventists seem to be purposeful, contented people who derive a deep satisfaction from their religion, end quote. Isn't that wonderful? I hope that those responsible for taking members into the church will note that this is the standard that our Catholic friends think converts are accepting in coming into the Seventh-day Adventist church. There are details here that sometimes need emphasis. Now back to the article. After telling about the history of our movement, how it arose back in the 1844 days with William Miller, how they were disappointed, and then decided they wouldn't set any more dates, but look for the imminent return of Christ. To this basic doctrine of Adventism, the tiny New England congregation added the belief that Christians should observe the Old Testament Sabbath rather than Sunday, which had been designated by an early pope. The role of the pope in changing the observance has given the movement an anti-Catholic orientation. Many Adventists seem to consider the Pope to be the Antichrist. End quote. And that's the, the, the Catholic author again. Notice how, from the beginning to the end, the Sabbath stands out as the great landmark of this movement. In all this, I seem to hear the echo of Great Controversy, page 605. The Sabbath will be the great test of loyalty, for it is the point of truth especially controverted. While one class, by accepting the sign of submission to earthly powers, received the mark of the beast, the other, choosing the token of allegiance to divine authority, received the seal of God. There we have it. Notice what the convert's catechism of Catholic doctrine, page 50, says on this matter. Quote, Which is the Sabbath day? Saturday is the Sabbath day. Why do we observe Sunday instead of Saturday? We observe Sunday instead of Saturday, because the Catholic Church transferred the solemnity from Saturday to Sunday, very clear and right to the point. Cardinal Gibbons, in his well-known book, The Faith of Our Fathers, page 111, quote, But you may read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, and you will not find a single line authorizing the sanctification of Sunday. The scriptures enforce the religious observance of Saturday, a day which we never sanctify, end quote. You see, this Sabbath question is more than the matter of a day. 
It's a question of whether the church speaking through the Pope or Christ speaking through the Bible is the real authority. Which one? The church speaking through the Pope or Christ speaking through his church, through the Bible? Which one is the authority? Notice this book we put out, sorry, notice this book's put out book put out by Pauli, Paulist Press in New York City. The question box, page 179. What Bible authority is there for changing the Sabbath from the seventh to the first day of the week? Who gave the Pope the authority to change a command of God? That's the question. Now here's their answer. If the Bible is the only guide for the Christian, then the Seventh-day Adventist is right in observing the Saturday with the Jew. The Catholics learn what to believe and to do from the divine infallible authority established by Jesus Christ, the Catholic Church. And on this issue comes the last great battle. I repeat, it is more than a day. It's a philosophy of life. Are we looking to men or to Christ? Are we looking to human ordinances or to eternal, unchangeable law of God? And after these things, I saw four angels standing on the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, nor on the sea, nor on any tree. Revelation 7, 1. What are those winds? Strife, war, confusion, persecution, all persecution, all the elements of destruction. What are the angels doing? They're holding them. But in the vision, they seemed about ready to relax their hold and let the winds blow. But John sees another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was given to hurt the earth and the sea, saying, Hurt not the earth, neither the sea nor the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. Revelation 7, 2 and 3. Here is the sealing of the remnant just before the last great crisis. As we've already studied, that awful storm of destruction is going to come over this world suddenly, unexpectedly. In Revelation 7, we see what's holding back that awful, overwhelming surprise. The angels of God are holding it back until the servants of God are sealed in their foreheads. Yes, you and I know what that seal is. It's the Sabbath. I gave them my Sabbaths to be a sign between me and them that they might know that I am the Lord that sanctify them, a sign and a seal. Hallow my Sabbaths, and they shall be a sign or a seal between me and you, that you may know that I am the Lord your God. Ezekiel 20, 12, and 20. So the Sabbath is the central feature in God's holy law, which is to be imprinted so deeply into the mind and hearts of the remnant that nothing can shake them. Just as soon as the people of God are sealed in their foreheads, now, it's not any seal or mark that can be seen, but a settling into the truth, both intellectually and spiritually, so that they cannot be moved. Just as soon as God's people are sealed and prepared for the shaking, it will come. Indeed, it has begun already. The judgments of God are now upon the land to give us warning that we may know what is coming. E.G. White, Six Bible Commentaries, page 1161. The judgments of God with the resulting shaking have begun, and yet the great fulfillment is future. These winds are blowing a bit as the angels loosen their hold, but the blowing of the winds with no restraint, the great time of trouble, the universal persecution, the worldwide strife, these are yet future. And those winds are held in check until what? Until you and I get settled in the truth. Somebody says, well, I'm settled. Are you? How much can you stand? Can you stand up in an 80 mile an hour wind? What about a hurricane? 
120 miles an hour, 150 miles. Oh, my dear friends, the winds are going to blow. It's going to mean something to the universe of God to look down upon this little planet and watch the 144,000 stand when the howling hurricanes of the wrath of the dragon is turned loose against the woman and went to make war against the people of God. Excuse me. The dragon was wroth with the woman and went to make war with the remnant of her seed, which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Revelation 12, 17. Now is the time to prepare for what is soon to come upon the world as an overwhelming surprise. Very clear that the central feature of this preparation is to get the Sabbath sealed in our forehead so deeply that nothing can efface it. We can see it as recognized by the Catholics as a great separating point between their movement and ours. God recognizes it. He makes it a subject to prophecy. The seal in the seventh chapter of Revelation going into the minds of the remnant the mark of the beast in the 13th chapter being enforced by economic and other pressures upon all the rest of the world. And in that issue, all the world will be divided into two great classes. Most will take the mark of the beast because they have been preparing for it. They have the habit of accepting the rule of man instead of the rule of God. They have the habit of accepting peace and security instead of truth and liberty. But God's people have learned to love his law and the Savior who is the author of the law and as a result, they come to the place where the truth, the Sabbath, is so identified with them and they with it that it's impossible to separate them. The only way to get rid of those strange ideas would be to kill them, and that's what the world is eventually going to attempt. In Isaiah 58, I want you to see what it is that's going to enable us to have that kind of settling into the truth. This great medical missionary chapter is also the great chapter of Sabbath reform. The remnant are pictured as raising up the foundation of many generations they are restorers, reformers. In the 13th verse, the promise to them is, If thou turn away thy foot from the Sabbath, from doing thy pleasure on my holy day, call the Sabbath a delight, the holy of the Lord, honorable, and shalt honor him, not doing thine own ways, nor finding thine own pleasures, nor speaking thine own words. Then shalt thou delight thyself in the Lord. Note the two delights. Call the Sabbath a delight. Delight thyself in the Lord. The two belong together. We could never find the delight, the special pleasure in the Sabbath until we see Jesus in the Sabbath as the creator that made this world in six days and rested the seventh and blessed it and sanctified it as a redeemer who gave up his life and rested during the whole holy hours of that Sabbath in Joseph's tomb as a great high priest interceding in our behalf in the sanctuary that the law with the Sabbath as its seal may be written in our hearts. In the chapter, I'm sorry, in the chapter in Desire of Ages on the Sabbath, the closing paragraph quotes these verses from Isaiah 58 and then adds, To all who receive the Sabbath as a sign of Christ's creative and redeeming power, it will be a delight. Seeing Christ in it, they delight themselves in him. The heart of the Sabbath is Jesus, the great creator, redeemer. Oh, Jesus, let me ever hail thy presence with the day of rest. Then shall thy servant never fail to deem thy Sabbath doubly blessed. But, dear ones, in order to enter into this double blessing, we need to watch that we do not allow the lax habits of Sunday keepers to enter into our Sabbath keeping. As God brings us this holy day from week to week, how many miss the blessing through letting ordinary things come into this extraordinary day? We must be guarded. Let we must be guarded, lest the lax practices that prevail 
Among Sunday keepers shall be followed by those who profess to observe God's holy rest day. The line of demarcation is to be made clear or distinct between those who bear the mark of God's kingdom and those who bear the sign of the kingdom of rebellion. Far more sacredness is attached to the Sabbath than is given to it by many professed Sabbath keepers. Testimonies, Volume 6, page 353. This chapter in Volume 6 is full of precious suggestions on the observance of the Sabbath. It's worth reading and pondering. The great point is, my dear friends, to accept Jesus as the Creator and Redeemer in the Sabbath, to so love Him and love His truth that when the great storm comes, we shall be so settled in the truth, so sealed in our foreheads with the seal of the living God, that nothing can move us, nothing can shake us. Dear Lord, write thy holy law on the tablets of our hearts. May we be settled intellectually in knowing thy Sabbath. May we be settled spiritually in loving thy Sabbath. And thus may we be among thy remnant that stand when all the world bows down to the beast in his image. We ask it for the honor of thy name, for Jesus' sake. Amen.